COP28 is approaching. This year's annual conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change marks the halfway point between the Paris Agreement, adopted at COP21 in 2015, and the key targets for 2030 that were set by many countries to put them on course to meet the goals of that agreement. The first global stocktake of climate action has concluded that there is a rapidly narrowing window to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. From the 30th of November, COP28 gets underway in Dubai to debate plans for getting on to that Paris-aligned pathway. The Energy Gang will be there as an accredited media organisation to bring you all the key developments from the conference. We'll be evaluating the pledges, the discussions and debates, the agreements and the arguments, with analysis from Energy Gang regulars and special guests. We'll be interviewing leaders and experts on climate and energy to get their views on the future that'll be mapped out at COP28. Subscribe to The Energy Gang wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss these very special episodes coming in the first week of December. This is The Interchange Recharged, a Wood Mackenzie production. I'm David Banmiller. We use a lot of plastic. By 2060, without a change to current policies, global plastic waste is projected to triple to a billion metric tons. The boom in plastics demand, especially low-cost, single-use material, has led to increased environmental issues around their disposal. The problem of plastic waste is being tackled from all sides, from chemicals producers to brand owners, all with commitments to ramp up recycling efforts. Chemical recycling is one route to a more circular plastics economy. Plastic Energy is taking this path. By converting end-of-life plastics into feedstock, which replaces fossil oils in the production of new plastics, they can create a truly circular economy. Adela Putinelu is Head of Policy and Sustainability at Plastic Energy. There needs to be more investment into recycling infrastructure, and that tends to not be a sexy thing, right? So governments need to think about the incentives related to how do we incentivize the business case in recycling? How do we make this attractive? As long as cheap virgin plastics will be the default option, then we don't really stand a chance. Adela, welcome to the Interchange Recharged. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So tell us a little bit about Plastic Energy, uh, what, what your guys' mission is, how you got started. Yeah, so Plastic Energy has been founded around 2011. Really, our mission is to play a part in, in solving the plastic waste crisis by expanding our recycling technology globally. And I mean, th- this obviously is a, is an often overlooked piece of the energy transition. And I mean, there's something like 390 million plus tons of plastics produced annually on a global scale. And a significant amount of that gets leaked out into the environment. It's it's around 22 million tons annually as well. How much of a, an impact do you guys currently make? I mean, what's your, what's your capacity? And you talk about wanting to grow. What are you looking to grow to? Yeah, thanks. So indeed, it, it is quite an overlooked piece of the energy transition sometimes because I think we have to look at plastics in the way that, you know, if we keep the carbon into circulation, that we do solve a lot of the issues related to the big impact that plastic production has. So that's what we're trying to do by recycling uh, plastics and putting it back into uh, plastics production and using circular feedstocks. Currently, our plants' capacities are different. So we have plants being uh, constructed at the moment around 20 kilotons, um, also 33 kilotons. And we're looking at higher capacities, for example, for a project in Germany 
that will be probably around 66 kilotons. So it's a different range of plant capacities that we're, we're working on at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about the technology you're utilizing on the recycling. So maybe walk us through that process and how it is uh, environmentally friendly and part of the energy transition. So we use a process that's called thermal anaerobic conversion. So it basically uh, heats plastics to a high temperature in the absence of oxygen, which basically transforms it into different um, vapors, which is condensed then into a synthetic oil. So that oil we put back into plastics production. So for example, we have offtake agreements for selling of tack oil. It's the patent name of, of the recycled oil that we sell to petrochemical partners, which act as offtake partners. And then what, what happens is they will use that recycled oil to replace part of the virgin feedstock as part of the plastic production. Um, so it virtually replaces NAFTA in the steam cracking of plastics. So as we grow the, the capacities for that, then we do have a shot over time to um, replace gradually the, the virgin production. And specifically on the tack oil, are there any other uses that you guys are, are looking for that, or is it truly just a circular feedstock back into 100% of the plastics production? At the moment, we're only focusing on plastic to plastic production. So all of our production goes back into the production of plastics. That's really because there is a very high demand at the moment for that. I think in the past, other companies have looked at using it for other purposes, for example, low carbon fuels. There are different uses with the technology. I think at the moment, there is a very, very big focus on plastic to plastic production. It also complements mechanical recycling. So what we cannot mechanically recycle, then the preference is for that to be chemically recycled. So for example, plastics that don't have viability for mechanical recycling um, that would normally go into incineration and landfill, we can take that and make a very valuable product out of it. It really is high demand at the moment for things like that. So that's why we have chosen over time to specifically focus on plastic to plastic. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And the demand isn't going to, is it going to shrink anytime soon? So, I mean, 100% of your production from that, the demand will, will continue to be there. I mean, even through growth plans, you'll continue to be able to supply 100% of your output to that industry. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to think about the different drivers that are already well in place for this demand to, to grow. And we have seen, you know, the growth and demand over time. I think now it's a, an issue of ourselves and others on the market being able to supply those volumes to the market. And the incentives are there already in terms of, you know, petrochemical companies are looking to expand the range of alternative feedstocks that they're using, whether it's recycled feedstocks like the ones that uh, we are providing them or bio-based feedstocks. They really need to diversify in order to lower the environmental footprint from, from their production and a big part of that, right, is, is using different feedstocks and transitioning away from using virgin oils. Uh, then you have the regulation side of it. And obviously, plastic waste management is very much a big issue at the moment. So the idea is to try to reduce, to reuse and recycle as much as possible. Uh, and we're only seriously getting started on that journey now. And then there's the commitments uh, that brands have, for example, from a sustainability perspective, they need to reduce the amount of plastics they use in the portfolio to lower the impact of that. And one way of doing it is to integrate recycled plastics into the plastics that they use and they put on the market. 
So all of these kind of different drivers are contributing to an increase in, in demand for cycloplastics globally. Through the recycling process that you utilize, is there any unusable waste that's a byproduct of that? Um, there's a very small quantity of waste that we're currently looking at also integrating in other applications. So for example, it can be used in tires or in construction sector. That's about 5% of the overall quantity. So we're looking at circular applications for that process as well currently. We know that there are companies that are interested in off-taking that as well. So that can also be valorized. Um, so the fractions are the synthetic oil. There's uh, syngas, which is a, a gas that we reuse in the system to lower the amount of electricity we use. And then uh, the very small quantity of byproduct that we're currently looking at integrating into other applications and tires or construction. So it is fully circular, all of the kind of the stuff that we're producing. And we're trying to really focus a lot on the environmental side of things. So we're looking at different uh, life cycle assessment studies, which show us um, the, the impact that we're currently having and how we can lower that into the future. There's uh, different options. For example, we're purchasing currently renewable electricity for our plants in Spain to lower the overall footprint into the future. Obviously, as the grid will decarbonize, especially in Europe and in the countries where we operate, we do find that in the future, the, the impacts will be much lower. So you're using renewable sourced energy in your operations, but then you're also able to use some of the byproduct from the process and circle it back into energy consumption for, for your business. Yeah, exactly. So obviously with any company, there's an option to purchase renewable electricity. So you're using it for the grid, but you're also investing in renewable energy to kind of offset that impact. One of the things that I've witnessed, at least over the last two years, has been a little bit different than other cycles where we've had economic downturns, is that energy transition is a little bit more resilient these days than it used to be. Because everybody is, I'm all for green energy, but if I'm paying a little bit more, I'm not as supportive. So from a cost standpoint, how does your recycled feedstock compare to to the others general? Yeah, I mean, I think generally there's there's a premium for recycled feedstocks at the moment, both mechanical and chemical, uh, which is normal as the capacities grow. We, we won't see such a big premium into the future, and that's because obviously everybody wants to scale these capacities. Um, so that's when you have, you know, once you have scale to volume, then the premium will go down. But I think what happens at the moment really is that there needs to be more investment into recycling infrastructure and that tends to not be a sexy thing, right? So governments need to think about the incentives related to how do we incentivize the business case and recycling? How do we make this uh, attractive? And there are certain drivers in place, but as long as obviously, you know, cheap virgin plastics will be the default option, uh, then we don't really stand a chance, right? So there has to be kind of a really good thinking in place as to how do we disincentivize production of virgin, and that's being done in Europe. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, getting the, the additional invents, investment to help scale the business, get the economies of scale going, then that premium eventually dissipates. Uh, and becomes much more on par and, and competitive. Have you seen clients these days willing to pay that premium for the green tag to it? Going back to my earlier point about 
the resilience of the energy transition compared to maybe the earlier stages, it does seem that still people out there are a little bit more willing to pay that premium to be environmentally friendly. Yes, I think there's definitely that willingness there. And that's really good. It tends to come either from a sustainability perspective in, in the sense that you do want, say, you are a brand, you want to gain that competitive advantage and be able to secure that feedstock. So you're incentivized to be, say, the first in the pack so you can do that. But I think it's, yeah, it's important to keep that momentum and really think about the scale in the future. We have to get better at recycling and we have to be able to return these recycled plastics back into the market to have that supply. So while it's very encouraging to see that willingness at the moment, it's, it's I think, the issue of, of scale and volume will be very important into, into the future to really be able to, to solve the big issues related to plastic waste. And, and we see that that's, you know, growing strongly. So we hope that the momentum is kept and the market goes into that direction. Hey, you mentioned the the need for growth via enhanced investment. What do you think needs to be done to help incentivize that investment? I mean, what, what are some suggestions that you would have to drive that forward? And, and how are you finding the current investment climate when you're talking to potential financiers? I think because Obviously, there's a lot of issues related to plastic waste, and this does tend to make a good case in terms of, of recycling. And we have seen the demand, like we were talking before. So I think generally the economic situation hasn't been great in the past years. It's still, I don't feel like that's going to be a long-term issue, right? Um, so that's encouraging to see, I think, with anything related to plastics and plastics production, from a business case and also from a private company perspective, it's important that the entire supply chain works together. And we have had a lot of really good collaborations with the supply chain um, because there's a lot of actors involved, right? You have the recyclers, you have plastic producers, uh, there's plastic converters, there's brands that use plastic. So the supply chain tends to be quite complicated. And the more there's a lot of collaboration between these different actors in the supply chain and you can get, you know, long-term offtake agreements and you can de-risk these investments. We have had a lot of collaborations like that um, that enabled us to, to grow, to put products in the market, to go beyond the proof of concept stage. Um, and we were, you know, able to do that as part of uh, working in partnership with a lot of these actors. So that has worked really, really well for us. And I think on the other side of, say, you know, governments and public uh, investment, I think regulation is really important because regulation will really drive the business case forward. So any incentives to, you know, transition away from virgin plastics really does help a lot. Yeah, I mean, right now, only about 9% of plastics globally are recycled with like 19% being incinerated and the remainder uh, in landfills. Have you seen those stats, particularly the one around 9% uh, recycled, changing? And, you know, obviously for the better, what do you think needs to, to happen to help increase that number? You'd mentioned a little bit earlier about technology and continuing to develop the technology around this recycling process. Do you think all those are coming together to help drive that number you know, higher, particularly as it relates to reducing the amount of landfill and incineration? Yeah, exactly. So I think, unfortunately, you're absolutely right. I think we have somehow plateaued right around this 9%. It can be, I think there's different stats around like 9%, 12% currently. 
but we're definitely, you know, not, we, we need to increase that heavily in, into the future, right? So I think the first starting point is really to think about um, having efficient collection systems in place. And from there on, obviously, you need to build the necessary infrastructure to be able to handle that and make sure you have a, a suit of complementary technologies that are able to to recycle that. And that takes a long time, right? And I think a big part of that is governmental regulation that will get the balance right and, you know, putting most of these costs onto the producers to be able to finance all of this stuff. We have seen, for example, throughout time and still to this day, it's a reality in terms of how a lot of countries deal with plastic waste is to do a lot of exports and export some of this stuff to other countries that obviously have the lower costs in dealing with them. And perhaps that has worked well for a while, but since China kind of decided not to take in the stuff, it was perhaps a big lesson for, for all countries to be able to manage this thing locally. And again, you're thinking about the business case of the circular economy to be able to use these resources and recirculate it, uh, keep the materials into circulation as long as possible. Countries need to think about taking you know, responsibility for the waste and, and try to uh, recycle as much as possible the waste within their borders by incentivizing. So three key aspects is continue to develop uh, the technology associated with the recycling and then financing and uh, regulatory slash policy to help scale up the recycling process and build and then build out the necessary infrastructure to support that scale. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the feedstock for the recycling process, where are you actually getting uh, those plastics for recycling? So we use feedstocks, uh, mixed polyolefins, so polyethylene. We focus on flexible plastics that normally don't have a route to be mechanically recycled. And then we produce the feedstock, which is goes back into packaging and is also prime kind of product for plastics that are in contact with food. Uh, because we are able to decontaminate it throughout through through the process, so uh, we partner with either mechanical recyclers. They cannot process this feedstock from the feedstock that they have. They will choose what's advantageous and economical for them to recycle, and then this stuff comes to us. So that's called yeah rejects from mechanical recycling. Or a different way of doing it is to partner with waste, big waste management uh, companies who, again, will kind of have to make decisions on what goes where in terms of mechanical landfill incineration. And that's where we kind of come in because obviously it's much more yeah, environmentally, it makes sense to process this chemically rather than landfill it or, or incinerate it. So it's either of, of these things. And I think, yeah, the more sort of incentives you, you have for recycling, the, the more it helps us to get that feedstock. Because if you're facing a lot of costs on either landfill or incineration, you don't want to do that, right? So you want to channel those feedstocks where, uh, where it most makes sense. So that's where we kind of come in. What types of feedstock right now um, on, the, on the chemical side would you reject? Because either the technology isn't there to recycle and maybe... Hopefully it's it's coming up in the next few years where that's going to be a possibility. But are there any things right now that you just can't accept from the recycling process? 
So we have a target feedstock. So we normally refer to it as mixed mixed plastics. That means in practice that it's a mix of polyolefin based materials. So that's polyethylene, polypropylene, polystyrene as well. So we can mix three different types of plastics into a target feedstock that we recycle. And then there's uh, some tolerance for certain contaminants or other types of plastics. So we have like a, a target specification that we work around with that also takes into account, for example, the specifications for our petrochemical partners. So obviously the recycled oil that we produce uh, will be uh, sort of influenced by the quality of the plastic waste feedstock that we use and being, you know, respecting the the specifications and then you're able to recycle it in a way that will then achieve the uh, specifications on the petrochemical partners and on what they can then process for new plastics. So it's generally quite a targeted kind of specification, but the big advantage really is that you're able to process three different types of polymers in, into one process, which obviously for mechanical uh, recycling doesn't happen. You need, you know, one specific polymer, very well sorted, cleaned uh, feedstock, which for us is, you know, we're much more flexible uh, with that. So that's why it's very much complementary. And also the, you know, the stuff we process now is is not being handled through mechanical recycling at all. So if you combine smartly mechanical recycling and chemical recycling, you can see why it, it does make sense, right? Now, how much is lost as you go through the circular process in terms of taking a piece of plastic into the tack oil that goes back into, say, manufacturing a similar type product? Is it something like you've got 90% of the feedstock back from it to put back into a similar product? Is it some other some other percentage? So it depends on the kind of feedstock that you work with, right? So the more feedstock that you're able to source in terms of, you know, is, is that very close to your target specification, obviously you will get a lot of good product out of it and very few losses. If you're dealing with a lot of contaminated uh, waste, then you have to, you know, spend more time in sorting it and cleaning it and making sure that you don't have other polymers in there that don't work. So it really depends on the quality of your initial kind of feedstock. And at the moment, we have mixed experiences with getting feedstock from different sources. Obviously, that gives you a different kind of quality of the material itself. So it largely depends. But I think as you have much better plastics be put on the market, for example, the more it is designed for recycling, uh, the better it is for everybody because then it's it's easier to, to deal with it. At the moment, it's kind of like a mixed experience until these sort of new regulations will, will come into place where you're able to put plastics on the market that are easily recyclable. At the moment, not all of them are. To the future, the yields will be much better as you have basically better plastics on, on the market. And that's the same with mechanical as well. Um, it's, you know, we all respond to the quality that we work with, basically. As the world moves more to kind of a circular economy, then that quality of the feedstock is going to improve, which increases the yield and the efficiency. And so it'll just continue to improve. Like you said, as more and more products are made for recycling. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the that's the direction of um, of travel to to really simplify this and and make it easier. And there's you know the importance of what you're able to integrate back into products as well. Mechanical works really good for PET. 
uh, and also it's in terms of how pure it is to bring it back into food contact applications for for packaging it has worked well other polymers don't because of different issues related to contamination or for example obviously certain plastic applications need certain tensile strengths certain technical properties um, but we're able to get much better at responding to it through chemical recycling because it offers uh, virgin quality materials. Yeah, that's one of the most important things. And also things like design for recycling for all plastics on the market to be able to be easily recycled. That's going to be a really important one into the future to ensure that there's good sort of waste feedstock to be used. And I think that this is just going to be a critical piece going forward because in order to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, I mean, energy generation is is one thing. But then there's obviously the number of different utilizations of oil and gas products, uh, obviously plastic being one of them. And so it's how, how are we going to address that, uh, right? Because there's there's multiple aspects and verticals within the energy transition. And so I think going forward, this is going to continue to be a key piece of how we continue to reduce our reliance on the fossil fuels. And, and when you look out to 2035, uh, you know, 2050, I mean, how do you see this industry looking at that point and, and scaling up in the meantime? I think it's definitely, it needs to grow, right? So I think we need to focus on the incentives of, of how fast are we able to scale recycling, both mechanical and chemical. So all technologies to kind of contribute to that. There's a lot of really interesting studies at the moment to show, well, if you're combining mechanical with with chemical, looking at the kind of feedstocks that you have available on the market and what technologies can address what feedstock, how are you able to go to be able to recycle basically everything that you put on the market. And there's some really encouraging studies looking at the balance and the choices that you have to make to get to that scenario. I think it's going to be a big journey ahead, right? These things are not easy. You're talking about sort of transforming the way that plastic production uh, works, right? So um, it's it's going to be a challenge, but I think what really sort of gives me hope in a way is the fact that if you look at climate change and all of the complexities related to climate change and all of the different challenges we have there, you look at things like one sector like plastics, we really do have already the necessary technologies uh, we know the big questions have their answer, right? It's a matter of actually implementing it and scaling rather than thinking, well, how do we do this? And in terms of if you take a step back, the general big climate change debate that we have at the moment, there are so many complexities and obviously there's a lot of solutions. But I think if you sort of just focus on one sector, like plastics, for example, I think we're quite fortunate compared to other sectors that you can see, well, if you do recycling as much as you can if you try to reduce production because that will also play an important role right we have to reduce the amount of plastic that we use in the first place you replace the feedstocks at the petrochemical level reduce the energy use there's a lot of discussion around using hydrogen um, when that will be available at scale you can do all of these different things and you do get to a picture in, in 2050 that looks quite promising, right? So I think there's definitely a lot of challenges ahead, but we do have the big questions already answered now. So we just have to sort of work on the implementation of that. Well, Adele, listen, I appreciate you joining us on the show uh, to talk about, in my opinion, a very important topic 
as we mentioned, something that's overlooked very often in the energy transition, but something that's going to be a key piece going forward. So I appreciate you joining us and giving us your thoughts. That was a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm David Ban Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged, out every second Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. If you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. It's a bi-weekly look at the biggest and most important stories in energy. Hosted by Ed Crooks, with regular guests Dr. Melissa Lott from Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and Amy Myers-Jaffe of NYU's Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, plus a roster of analysts, commentators, and industry leaders, it's everything you need to know in one place. So next Friday from 7 a.m. Eastern Time, join the Energy Gang Conversation and we'll see you in a couple weeks.